Thanks, Floyd. And um, a couple words of encouragement, uh, just as you kind of consider and turn your attention to uh, Hebrews chapter 2, which is where we're going to focus today. Um, as we have these member spotlights, uh, one of the things I'm reminded of is it's super easy for all of us to sort of become um, super focused on whatever ministry that we're involved with. Uh, in business terms, that's, that's, uh, they, they know that as being siloed. Okay, and generally speaking, that's a negative term. Uh, you don't want to become so laser focused on what you're doing that you're not aware of what's going on around you. So let me encourage you uh, when we talk about the Thomases or um, whoever else that we're uh, uh, focusing on for, for that week, not just to pray for them, but to say, hey, wow, Asian Hope International, I don't know anything about them. Um, you may not be aware there's 750 students there and they're growing. Uh, they're expanding, and so if you think about uh, Hope and Logos and Asian Hope International, um, you've got, you know, well over probably close to 1,500 students that are being impacted on a weekly basis, and that just helps us pray for one another, um, and so our ministry is important, your ministry is important, we recognize that, uh, but it uh, uh, gives us a good opportunity to sort of expand our horizons and understand, hey, this is what's going on, this is awesome, and pro maybe things aren't so awesome in your ministry area, but God is doing His work in His way uh, for His glory. And so, um, one other thing that I just want to mention, uh, as the kids have gone, uh, some of you know uh, that this has been an extremely difficult week uh, for one particular family in our uh, community. Um, uh, you might know the Sang family, Hood and Jacinta. Uh, they both serve at Asian Hope International. Um, their brother and sister-in-law uh, were expecting uh, a baby, and Tina, um, Tia's wife, uh, died in childbirth on Monday night. And um, when someone passes away, it is a tragedy. When someone passes away at such a young age, it is, feels so very tragic. And so I want to say two things. One, thank you for those that have reached out to them. Um, having a ministry of presence is so important in a time of crisis because Tia, there's nothing that we can say to him that's going to cover the loss of his wife. And uh, but you can be there. And so thank you for those of you who rallied around them. Um, secondly, if you would like to help them and you haven't already, um, we can help you do that. There's a meal train. There's practical ways that you can come alongside them. Uh, and they live super close. And so uh, if you have any questions, just let me know and I can point you in the right direction. Uh, turn in your Bibles to uh, Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, and uh, we're going to continue in our series through the book of Hebrews. Uh, the title of uh, this entire series is The Glory of Christ, Our Hope and Comfort. Um, let me just say something really quickly. Uh, as you kind of look at the theme, um, when we study the Word of God, uh, this is true of all of Scripture, is remember that orthodoxy, okay, that's right teaching, always leads to good praxis or application, okay? And so, as we kind of look at uh, the theological uh, foundation that the author of the book of Hebrews is building, it's namely that Jesus is superior to all others, and it's all about the glory of Christ. The application to that, which we like application, is that Jesus is our hope and comfort. You can think about the book of Romans. Uh, Paul builds its foundation of salvation in Romans 1 through 11, and then in the last third of the book, chapters 12 through 16, we see the application of what it looks like in our everyday life. The book of Hebrews is just like that. Hebrews chapter 1 through 10 
is sort of this foundation that Jesus is superior. Chapter 11 is that practical application of salvation. It's a great chapter about the hall of faith, that because of who Jesus is, we put our faith in him, just as those in the Old Testament did, we do today. Why? Because he is our savior. He is our hope. He is our only comfort. And then in chapters 12 and 13, we're going to find just this practical application, nuts and bolts. Let me just say this real quick, Kate. Don't run around the theology, okay, around the orthodoxy and get to the practical application. If you look down through church history for the last 2,000 years, what you find is that when people short-circuit that, they end up in bad teaching because our feelings, what we want, what we desire, they betray us. And if you turn that around, then we begin to believe what I feel in that personal application, okay? And so start, that's why we systematically teach verse by verse. We exposit the Word of God. We've been doing that for 15 years now. And we say, what does the author of the book of Hebrews want to teach us? Well, the book of Hebrews is about the glory of Christ. The theme verse is Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. Okay? Uh, You've heard that the last several weeks. I think this is week four. Let me just draw your attention to something is that I ended last week in the book of Jude. Remember, it's that little epistle. Jude says, I wanted to write to encourage you, but now I have to warn you because you're drifting away. And that was the message of last week, right? And then at the end, do you remember what the encouragement is in the book of Jude? It's the glory of Christ. He says, you beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. Okay, there's the exhortation. Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by saving them out of the what? Do you remember? Out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, having even the garment stained by the flesh. And you know, in the context of the book of Jude, uh, this wasn't necessarily moral issues, though I'm sure there were. These were theological issues. It's, it's what people believed. And you say, well, why are you pointing that out? Well, Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and what? Good works. Not necessarily, though not limited to those things that we do in, in our ministry, in the community, but not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging who? One another, the body of Christ. And all the more as you see the day, the great perusia, when Christ will return. We live in a day and an age where, if you're like me, you find it very hard to practice this. But that's the message of the book of Hebrews. Jesus Christ, His glory, He's our hope, He's our encouragement, He's our peace, and we come together and we declare that through music, through worship, through the Word, but we also do that so we can look our brothers and sisters in the eye and say, hey, how you doing? And if we notice that someone is drifting, remember the purpose is, is, is to not allow someone to have gospel FOMO. The fear of missing out is a bad thing in the world, but having gospel FOMO, the fear of someone else or even myself missing out on the gospel, that's a tragic thing. So we come together, and this is the theme of the book of Hebrews, and we encourage everyone around us, don't miss out on the gospel. 
And when I say that, I'm encouraging myself. And when there is an issue, as hard as it is, don't be afraid to go to someone and say, hey, brother, hey, sister, um, did I hear you say this? What, what did you mean by that? Now, we know the approach, it's all about the approach. I don't want to come to someone accusing them of something, but sometimes it's just clarifying. I, I heard you say this. Do you really believe that? Listen, in the body of Christ, it's not only perfectly acceptable to do that, it's needful. I stand before you, whoever's filling this pulpit, we expect that you will be like Bereans in the book of Acts, and that you will listen to what we're saying, and that you will go back and say, well, let's make sure that's in the word of God. I expect you to hold me accountable for that. And I hope that you feel like that you can be held accountable. Students, you're sitting in your Bible class and you're listening to your Bible teacher. You listen and make sure that they're spot on according to the word of God. Those of you who are involved with organizations or institutions, listen to what your leaders are saying. Make sure they're not missing out on the gospel. And if they are, it's our responsibility. It's your responsibility to say, uh, hey, Hey, listen, it, can you explain what you just said about this, about the person of Christ? That's what we do when we come together. Be bold when it comes to the Word of God. We come together as the body of Christ, yes, to worship, but to be rooted in His Word. That was the message last week. Beware of drifting Retain and recall what you have heard, chapter 2, verse 1. Rest in the reliability of Scripture, verses 2 through 4. And remember the finished work of Christ, verses 5 through 9. I love, I love everything about John Newton. Um, he said, when I was young, this was at the very end of his life, I was sure of many things. Now there are only two things of which I am sure. One is that I am a miserable sinner, and the other, that Christ is an all-sufficient Savior. That goes right hand in hand with what the author of the book of Hebrews is trying to communicate, mostly to those who grew up in Judaism, but now there are Gentile believers that he's writing to as well, and he says, hey, I want you to know that it's about Christ. Don't miss the point. Today we're going to look at Hebrews 2, verses 9 through the end of the chapter in verse 18. So if you have a copy of Scripture, you can read along or you can follow me or the screen. We're going to talk about Jesus being the perfect Savior. Jesus, the perfect Savior. Verse 9 says, But we see him who was for a little while was made lower than the angels, Namely, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering." For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all, have all one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, now we're going to get two quotes right out of the Old Testament, first out of Psalm 22, then Isaiah 8. I will tell you of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing of your praise. 
And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children of God has given me. Since therefore, verse 14, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, verse 17, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus is indeed the perfect Savior. How many of you enjoy the Olympics? Anybody watch the Olympics? Comes on every, how many years? Four years, okay? Uh, now, depending on where you're from, probably depends on who you follow, okay? Um, uh, what, what sport in the Olympics do you not like? Do you ever have any, like, things that you just cannot stand to watch? Curling, Winter Olympics. Boxing, okay? Equestrian. Oh, no, nobody said soccer over here. You'll get run out of town for that, okay? <laughs> Long distance running. Okay, so we all, we all have those sports that we gravitate towards. Um, the sports that I do not like to watch are those where they're judged and it seems like it's completely subjective, at least in running, they're running against the clock, right? Who wins, wins. If it's basketball, whoever has the most points, wins. But sports like figure skating, right? I mean, I can never figure out who really wins. Like, how do you determine what spin, what jump, what program really, really should get the gold medal, right? Funny enough, I remember... One of the most vivid times watching the Olympics, uh, I was eight years old, 1976 Olympics, Montreal. We were watching gymnastics. You know why we were watching gymnastics? I have one, I have one brother and eight male cousins, okay? The only reason we were watching gymnastics is it was because it was the only thing on, okay? And my mom loved it right? So here she was. She was sitting in the front, but it got our attention. Um, anybody remember the gymnast from Romania? Nadia Comaneci, right? Probably didn't get her name right, right? But uh, she's this Romanian girl. She was 14 years old. She was awesome. And even as an eight-year-old, I was captivated. And as she continued to do her exercises, she began to get a string of perfect scores. Now, what's a perfect score in gymnastics? Ten. And every time she would perform, it's all of a sudden, all these guys, we had to admit it, right? We were sitting at the edge of our seat, and we're yelling, ten, ten, ten. She had six perfect scores in the 1976 Olympics, six gold medals in all. She was inspiring. And I remember thinking, why am I captivated by gymnastics? I don't know anything about it. Well, one of the things was that she, 
Here was this young girl facing off against the best in the world, and she was, by the standard of gymnastics, perfect. We're drawn to perfection. We're drawn to doing something not just well, but to be the best. The thing is, humanly speaking, none of us are perfect. Now, Nadia Comaneci was close, but if you were to go back and replay her routines, there must have been something wrong. I'm convinced the judges sort of got caught up into Nadia's, Nadia mania, right? She was awesome, but as humans, we're not perfect. There's only one human being in the history of the world that is perfect, and that is Jesus Christ. This is the message that the author wants to leave us today, and that's what I want to leave you. Over the centuries, we know that many people have rejected Christianity because certain essential doctrines that we hold to have been stumbling blocks to them. Muslims, for example, have always had trouble with the incarnation because they believe it entails the transformation of God into a mere man. Yet, this is clearly a misunderstanding of what the incarnation is. For the doctrine of the incarnation holds that God the Son added to himself a human nature without in any way changing or lessening his deity. He is, and here's the important thing, he is truly God and truly man at the same time. One of the big theological things that all the commentators talk about in this text is the hypostatic union of Christ. Okay, you want to go back and you want to research that, I encourage you to do so because it's super important. For the first 500 years of the church, there was much discussion and argument about the nature of Christ's humanity on one hand and his divinity on the other. Probably the best definition of what this hypostatic union is, the nature of Christ, is found in one of the ancient creeds, the Chalcedonian Creed. It says that Christ in regards to his two natures, was without change, without division, and without separation. You can go back and read texts like Philippians 2, 6 6 through 11, and this is the church working out how is it that Christ could be totally man and totally God. But his perfection depends on on the fact and the reality and the truth that he is 100% God and 100% man. He is the definition of perfection. No man ever, before or since, will ever be Christ. Some of those who have rejected the gospel have rejected him because they simply cannot conceive of what they cannot understand. Be very careful of projecting onto God, Father, Son, or Holy Spirit, an understanding that is limited towards your finite mind. God is, by definition, infinite. We accept that He is omnipresent. What does that mean? That He is everywhere at once. But I cannot explain that to you in a way 
that your human mind or my human mind can understand in a right way. But nevertheless, we say that he is, in fact, omnipresent. He is omniscient. He knows everything. He is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. Jesus Christ in the incarnation was 100% God and 100% man. Augustine said this, and it's more of an application of the incarnation. In order to be the mediator, the Son willed to take the form of a servant below the angels, being simultaneously the way of life on earth and the life itself in heaven. You'd say, well, does that really matter? Yeah, it absolutely matters to us. So when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 23 to 25, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men, even when we don't understand it. Who we preach... Jesus Christ is indeed a stumbling block to the Jews. Paul is writing to the church at Corinth. The author of Hebrews would have said to some of you that thought that Jesus was coming to overthrow the Roman Empire, the fact that he died, the fact that he suffered, it's inconceivable. That was not their Messiah. But those of us who understand the scope of biblical revelation, the incarnation, including his death and suffering, are the most fitting for the purpose of saving men and women. And that's today's passage. Jesus willingly came to die, to suffer, in order that he would become our high priest. Three big points. Okay, go back. Read them later this week. Jesus was born to die, verse 9. Jesus was born to suffer, verses 10 through 13. And Jesus was born to mediate or be our high priest in verses 14 through 18. Look at verse 9 again. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, lower in worth. No. That word lower there has the idea that he willingly stepped down. Namely, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. That's that theme because of the, of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For the Jews, they, they couldn't comprehend the idea that God would become man, much less that he would die. But this became the heart of the message of the early church. Think of Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 4. One of the early messages of the church when they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue for the Jews and Paul went in as was his custom and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from scriptures explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. In death, in his suffering, Jesus became our substitute taking on not only physical death, but humiliation, as the Puritans used to call it, submitting himself under the angels. And again, Jesus is the king of kings. He's introduced as the high priest, and he is our prophet. 
but it was only through his death that we can say and go to familiar texts and have peace in them like Romans 6:23 the wages of sin is death but the gift of God is eternal life through who Jesus Christ our Lord it's the only way that Paul could say in Galatians chapter 2, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Remember, the author of Hebrews is comparing the Old Testament system, particularly the book of Leviticus, which shows that the sins of the people had to be made right, to be atoned for. Jesus becomes that perfect sacrifice. Not only the perfect sacrifice, but our high priest at the same time, so that in his sacrifice, no further sacrifices would need to be made. Jesus was not only born to die, but he was born to suffer, verses 10 through 13. Again, you have two Old Testament texts. Look at verse 10. It was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, this is Jesus as creator and sustainer, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation, what? Perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have, what? One source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them his brothers. By the way, just let me introduce a quick theological twist here that's super important. Many times we say that God is sovereign. He is sovereign in my salvation. If you look carefully at verse 10 and 11, what you find is that God the Father is not sovereign in our salvation, but it is Jesus Christ, and we know through the work of the Holy Spirit today, that actually sanctifies us. And you say, well, why is that important? Well, it's super important. And this is one of the things that the Reformers understood, that Nothing I can do contributes to my salvation, and nothing I do actually contributes to my sanctification. And nothing I do will eventually result in my glorification before God. Now, those are all big words, all to say, God's got it. And I can't take credit for any of it. It took me a long time to catch that. Because what I caught... Not necessarily, I don't think, what was taught growing up to me was that if I did the right things, I went to church, I memorized scripture, I dressed a certain way, I didn't do certain other activities, if I got good grades in school, then somehow that I participated in my sanctification. Do I have responsibility to do the things I know that God has called me to do to live a life of holiness? Yes, absolutely. But I simply cannot take credit for it. Why? Because it's Jesus, according to verse 11, who is the one that is sanctifying me. And by the way, that word there is interchangeable in other places, especially the Pauline letters with justification. And so for some of us that get really caught up, okay, 
in, in, in justification by faith and faith alone, which is absolutely true. We can also read this to say that it is also our sanctification that comes through faith and faith alone. So when we hear terms like sola fide, by faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, and you read Hebrews chapter 11, you say it is only because of Christ that I'm sitting here today receiving the word. And texts like 2 Peter 3.18 make a lot of sense, which says, be sanctified if God wills it. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. I think it's going to be on the screen. I just want to read it briefly, okay? It says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested, what? Apart from the law. We need the law. The law points us to our sinfulness. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Texts like this make no sense. The book of Romans in general makes no sense at all unless we understand that Jesus came to die and he came to suffer. He cites Psalm 22 and Isaiah 8 in order to demonstrate the humanity of Christ who's completely human, and his solidarity with us as sinners. He is like us, truly human in every way, but without sin, therefore, he can save us. We can't soft-sell this to those that we are proclaiming the gospel to. It is the gospel. Christ died, and he suffered in my place, he took on the wrath of God. Second Corinthians 5.21, again, you cannot twist that to make it say anything else that God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to become what? To become sin for us, so that when Jesus went to the cross, every ounce of wrath that I deserve and that you deserve was directed to the second person of the Trinity. And in his humanity, he died for us that are in Christ. That is mind-blowing. And I need to rest in that and feed on that every day. Jesus was born to die. He was born to suffer. And he was born to mediate as our High priest. Why does big theological terms like the hypostatic union, why does it matter? <laughs> it matters because as the incarnate God in the flesh, he became our mediator. Verses 14 to 18. Just look at verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself what? Likewise partook of the same things. Now he was born differently from a virgin. He did not inherit original sin. He lived a life perfectly, but he partook in the same life that we do, that through what? Death, he might destroy the one who's the power of death, that is who? The devil. There's a real cosmic battle going on. 
between <laughs> Satan and God. Verse 16, for surely it is not angels that he helps. Jesus didn't die for the angels, but he helps the offspring of Abraham, all of humanity. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful, here it is, high priest. Go over to Hebrews chapter 4. You're going to flesh that out in a few weeks. That he might become our high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, satisfaction for the sins of the people. For because he himself has, what, has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. C.H. Spurgeon put it this way. Again, this is that application. Is not thy hold on Christ that saves thee. It is Christ. It is not thy joy in Christ that saves thee. It is Christ. It is not even thy faith in Christ, though that may be the instrument. It is Christ's blood and merit. Spurgeon simply saying is that Again, we don't take credit for it. It's not, it's not my faith. It's, it's Christ's work that holds my faith steady. Did you catch that? Holds our faith steady. By the way, we're going to get into this later, okay? The application of this, but I just want to give you a taste of this. I hope you're reading through the book of Hebrews. It takes about 20 minutes, chapter 1 all the way through chapter 13. It's good to get that whole picture, the macro picture of where author is leading us, is that because Christ died and because he suffered and because he became our perfect high priest, we can take on suffering too. We take on suffering and Christ gets the glory for it. That's Colossians 1, 17 20. I make up that which is lacking is what Paul said, because Christ's sacrifice on the cross was lacking? No. It's because it becomes a physical manifestation to those that the gospel is being proclaimed to. So that even when I suffer, or even choose to suffer, even accept martyrdom, Christ gets the glory. Why? Because he's already fulfilled in his perfection, death, suffering, and he's our perfect high priest in heaven. How do we apply this? Does it make a difference? Yeah, absolutely. Jesus died for us. Therefore, according to the text, we need not fear death. One of the benefits that Jesus' death brings followers of Christ is that we need not fear the unknown. Death is indeed, according to 1 Corinthians 15, our enemy. It's the final enemy, but we need not fear it. We are not guaranteed another day here on earth. My exhortation to myself and to you is be prepared. Be prepared for that day. You need not fear death if you know that you're going to meet Christ. Jesus suffered for us. He identifies with our weaknesses and our temptations. Some of us have besetting sins or temptations in our life. We're weak in the flesh, and we beat ourselves up over it. Jesus suffered for us in the midst of, according to verse 18, when he was tempted, Jesus understands. He responded perfectly, we don't. 
And when we don't, we don't rest in doing it better next time. We don't rest in trying harder. What do we rest in? The person of Christ. He not only died for us and suffered for us, but he's our high priest. Our sins, past, present, and future have been made what? Right. They've been made right. That's shalom. That's true peace. So when the enemy has a run at you from something that you did years ago or something that you did today or perhaps causes you to be anxious about what you might do in the future, you can say Christ is enough. His perfection is enough. He is my hope and my comfort. So I can say with Paul in Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Okay, when you die, everyone in this room, aside from Jesus coming back, you will die. You want that to be said at your funeral. Where is the sting of death? Because they people will know that your hope was in Christ. Hebrews 4.15 says, We don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been what tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. I love this by Paul Washer. We're going to have a closing song in just a minute. It's going to be entitled Always. It's, it speaks of Christ being our always. Paul Washer says this, You are not saved because your repentance and faith are perfect. Hear this. Rest in this. You are not saved because your repentance and faith are perfect. You're saved because the work of Christ is perfect, and you're clinging to that in your frailty and your helplessness. I'm applying that to myself. I'm resting that in my frailty and in my helplessness, it is the perfection of Christ that keeps me in the palm of his hand. That was the promises to the disciples, right? So if you wrestle with that, or you wrestle with that message, I hope that in, you will do business before the Lord and you'll be able to say, Christ, you're my always. You're the one who's there. I need not be anxious. I need not fear. I need not despair because of who Jesus is.